Have you all noticed how many good stories have memorable opening lines, paragraphs that catch you right from the start? Maybe it's the classic phrases, once upon a time, a long time ago, or far, far away in a distant land. Or maybe some of you are familiar with It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Anyone know that one? Pride and Prejudice? Maybe more familiar. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness, etc., etc. Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. On and on we could go. So we turn our Bibles to page one and we consider the opening lines of God's Word. I want us to not consider whether these are the most attention grabbing literary works of art, but I'd rather emphatically want to make the case that these might be the most important words that you ever read or hear. I've been tempted to make the entire message this morning off of these first four English words, but instead we'll just make it our first point. Behold the God who is in the beginning. The Bible opens in the beginning, and then there's one very important word, God. In the beginning, God. The first subject of the Bible is God. The last subject of the Bible is God. The object of the Bible is God. From the beginning, it is about Him, for Him, through Him. Friends, it's all about Him. There are a lot of questions in Genesis chapter 1, and I am positive I will not answer all of them today nor in the weeks to come. But I'm very confident that what you need, what I need today, tomorrow, next week, the week after, is you need these four words, in the beginning, God. One of the greatest weaknesses we have as humans is that we get quickly distracted from what really matters. And what really matters, my friends, is God. We lose sight of the big picture, and we get caught up in the minutiae and the details, and when we do so, we lose hope, we lose faith, we lose perspective. And so I want to remind us today, this morning, behold, behold the God who is in the beginning. Your greatest need this morning, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, is that you need to know Him, see Him, trust Him, believe in Him. That there was a God that was in the beginning and there was nothing else. There wasn't time, He exists outside of it. There was no matter, He made all of it. There were no angels, there were no spirits, there were no other gods. He was the infinite, eternal, happy, harmoniously existing three gods in one person. And when you consider these things, that in the beginning there was an eternal, infinite God, it comes so incredibly helpful day after day when you pause and you stop. And you just acknowledge that in the beginning, God. I encourage you to do this. Take time. 
every single day. If you make a habit to pray daily, in the morning, in the evening, before a meal, take just 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And before you start to speak to this God, think of these four words. In the beginning, God. start to soak in for a moment that you're about to speak to the infinite, eternal God who needs nothing, who made everything, and that you are completely and totally and utterly dependent on Him every single breath you take. I want to take it one step further, other than just pausing to pray, I, I want to encourage many of you, if you've not done so, make it a habit that in your Christian life, you will take time to read Christian books that are only about God. I want to share a little section to whet the appetite for what I mean by focusing your attention on just the God who is and how helpful this is. For your soul, how sanctifying it is, how transforming it is. So this is a quote from R.C. Sproul in the book that I recommend, Discovering the God Who Is. Add that to your list of books to read. See if this does not help your soul this morning. The grand difference between a human being and a supreme being is precisely this. Apart from God, I do not exist. Apart from me, God always exists. God does not need me in order for Him to be. But I need God in order for me to be. This is the difference between what we call the self-existent being and a dependent being. We are dependent beings. We are fragile. We can't live without air, water, food. No human being has the power of being within himself. Life is lived between two hospitals. We need a support system from our birth to our death. We are like flowers that bloom and wither and then fade. This is how we differ from God. God does not wither. God does not fade. God is not fragile. Isn't that helpful? To just stop for a moment and consider that you exist because of this God and He does not need you. You have nothing Nothing that you could even think of except for the gracious hand of God. Acts 17, we just heard, says, In Him we move and live and have our being. Are any of you struggling with pride today? And just to make sure you know, the answer to that question every time I ask it is yes. Yes, Pastor, I'm struggling with pride today. What's the best question to ask a proud person? Where were you? Why is that the best question to ask a proud person? 
Because in Job 38, God asked Job to set him in his place. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when the morning stars sang together? Answer, you weren't there, Job. First four words. In the beginning, no, no, you weren't there. In the beginning, God. We will get to us. The Bible does get to us. We are important. We are way more important than any other worldview or book of religion. We are the crown jewel of his glory as we will see in the weeks to come. But in the beginning, before we get to you, we get to God. You are not the center of the universe. All of us, we need a Copernican revolution. Do you know what the Copernican revolution is? For the longest of times, people thought that we were the center and that the sun came around us. And then, wow, we're actually just rotating around the sun. That's what all of us need. All of us are born into this world with this understanding that we're the center and everything revolves around us. No, God, God Almighty is at the center, and everything revolves around Him, and until you see Him as the center, your world will clash in all sorts of ways, like the planets would clash if the earth were the center of the solar system. Something heavier, weightier has to be at the center for the orbit to work, and so it is with us. Something heavier and weighter. The glory of the Almighty God must be at the center of our universe. As Matthew Henry said, the greatest and best that a man could ever say is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God absolutely says, I am that I am. At Embassy Church, our vision is this. We exist. This church exists. We're gathering today for God, for the glory of Jesus Christ. So, quick story. Three years ago, it's almost three years to the day that this church had its first ever gathering. And I promised that every gathering from the first to the last, as long as I'm helping lead and preach at these gatherings, would be a God-centered gathering. So September 7th, three years ago, a group of people, about 24, if I remember, gathered in a home, in a living room, and I said, we're thinking about starting a church. Here's the vision of the church. We exist for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then I said, period. Our goal is not numbers and attendance. Our goal is not seats that fill up auditoriums. Our goal is not dollars in a budget. Our goal is not multiple services, multiple campuses. Our goal is Christ. Our goal is God. Our goal is for you to be captured by the glory of Jesus Christ. That's it. We could fail in a thousand things, but let us not fail that in the beginning there was God. And let us not fail to remind each other that in the beginning there was God. I'm slightly passionate about this. Every single worship service, if you've not noticed, 
begins with me taking the bulletin and reminding you, we have gathered to worship fill-in-the-blank, and it's some attribute of God. So today, I gathered in front of you. Maybe you didn't notice. Maybe you came in late. We have gathered this morning to worship the self-sufficient God. That's why we've gathered this morning. And you hear this every single week as we see the first line of our worship service. This is a God-centered worship gathering. We read scriptures to praise God. We read scriptures and confess our sin to acknowledge that we are not God. He is God. We're sinful. We think we're God. We want the world to revolve around us. So we pray in light of those things. We sing songs that are God-centered songs. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We try as much as possible not to sing. There's lots of songs to sing. We try not to sing songs about us so much. So natural for us to want to focus on ourselves. No, let's create a space. We have a few songs to sing. Let's sing God songs. Let's think about Him. Let's pray to Him. My hope is that as you attend this church, if you continue to come, as you've come for those of you that are members, you will come hungering and longing for God and not anything else, not music, not performances, not entertainment, but that there will be a growing desire. You know what I need today. You know what I'm missing this week. You know, it's been a long time since Sunday. I'm longing to hear about God. I want to know him. I want to hear about how good he is, how kind he's been, how faithful he's been. I want to know that he's strong and that he's mighty and that he's got a plan and that I fit in that plan, that I'm not the center of it, but that he is and that I get great joy when knowing that he's the center and not me. My hope is that we'd have churches that flow out from this fundamental truth that we exist for the glory and the majesty of God. One more quote from one of these God-centered books. A.W. Tozer's little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, in a chapter on the self-sufficiency of God, says probably the hardest thought for all of our natural egotism is to entertain that God does not need your help. One of the hardest things for natural, egotistical people is that God does not need our help. He continues and says, We commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father, hurrying about, seeking to carry out his plans to bring peace and salvation to the world. But know this, the God who works all things does not need helpers. Tozer laments that too many missionary appeals have been based on the frustration of Almighty God. Effective speakers come and go, exciting pity in their listeners, not just for the non-Christians around the world, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them, but has failed because he lacks such support. Tozer says, I fear that thousands of young people have entered into the Christian service from no higher motive than to try and help deliver God from his embarrassing situation that he has gotten himself into with his limited abilities of getting himself out of. My hope and prayer is that at Embassy Church, we will not pass over these four words. We will understand that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the center. He is everything. 
that in the beginning there was a God who existed. He did not need you, and he has a plan, and he's going to accomplish that plan. And by his grace, he chooses to use us. But even if he didn't, he would make the rocks cry out. This cannot be overstated enough. These four words, in the beginning, God. The gospel begins with God. If you're a member here, you know that as elders, we ask you to share the gospel. If you're not a member, and maybe one day you'd like to become a member, and you're in that situation where the elders are about to ask, please explain to me, what's your understanding of the gospel? Now, please know that it's not like a test, although it kind of is. Like if you say something really crazy, like, well, I'm trusting in myself. Uh, That's not the gospel. But we're not looking for perfect answers. But here's a tip. Not only in that conversation, because I've heard this a lot, but also in your conversations with other people, you're trying to explain what the message of the Bible is. A lot of times what people say is, well, we are sinners. No, 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 no. The Bible begins with a good, gracious, powerful, infinite, eternal, all-knowing, all-everything God. And in his goodness and kindness, he created everything that is. He is the author of everything. And throughout the scriptures, he names things because he owns them. He, He has rights over them. So therefore, we are to subject ourselves to this God. That's, that's the beginning of the gospel. People will not understand we're all sinners and need Jesus if you don't first lay the foundation who this God is that we have sinned against. Genesis 3 is not the start of the Bible. In the beginning, God is the start of the Bible. So it is with the beginning of the gospel. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, know that the first thing for you to think about is, do you believe in God? Do you believe in eternal matter? If you believe in God, do you believe in the God of the Bible? Do you believe that He is good, that His creation is good? And do you realize that we have been like clay pots who speak back in rebellion to the potter? and are unhappy with the way that he has made us and the world in it, and we have rebelled against him. And he has every right to do whatever he pleases, but in his kindness, he has, in his mercy and in his love and his grace, he has chosen to redeem us people. This is the gospel, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to not just believe in God, but believe in the God who creates and is patiently working even in the midst of our sin and our rebellion, and has already redeemed the world through Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Him. So that's point one. It's the longest point. I want us to think about the first four words. In the beginning, God, behold Him. Let's make Him central to our lives, individually, collectively, corporately as a church. And let's not skip over them as we move on through Genesis. Second point. Behold the God who created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These two phrases, Elohim and then the word for create, only the word create is connected with the divine work of God. 
So there's not a biblical concept or idea that other people create like God creates. So this is unique. This is divine creation. God is the one who is creating the heavens and the earth. More literally, these words are the sky and the land. I think part of that is because when you and I, when you, when you hear verse 1, I think a lot of us were kind of trapped into our culture of our modern world. And when you think of, he created the heavens and the earth, you think of potentially the whole globe or the whole solar system or the, the whole galaxies, things that people 3,000 years ago couldn't even dream that we would see in the inventions of modern science and telescopes and Hubble. So more literally, it says that he created the skies and he created the, the land. This is everything that they would have known, the world that they live in. is everything up there and everything down here. If you want to take these words very literally, that's what they mean. Very literally, he made the ground, he made the sky. The reason why they're translated the heavens and the earth, and the reason why it started here at the beginning, is to help capture the idea that it's a contrast he made it all. He made everything. That's, that's the idea. It's a contrast of everything down here, everything up there, everything you could even put your eye to, he, he made. So that's verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, this is where things start getting more tricky, both grammatically, maybe even logically, there's questions about what's the relationship between verse 1 and verse 2 as we understand how to read the Bible appropriately or carefully. Is verse 1 an introductory sentence and verse 2 the first act of creation? Or is verse 1 and 2 together as an introductory sentence? Again, I probably can't answer all of your questions about these matters. I, I can't claim to be a Hebrew scholar that knows how to read the language is perfectly. But, but notice the way even in your English Bibles, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says in verse 2, the earth, or the land, it's the Hebrew word eretz, it's the land. So all the land that's around them, all the earth, it's without form and void. And these words actually rhyme in the Hebrew. Tohu vavohu. And the only other place we see them in the Bible describes it as a desolate wasteland or wilderness. So the earth was tohu vavohu. It was, it was a desolate wasteland. And then it says, darkness was over the face of the deep. Most likely deep means here the deep waters. So the land is a desolate wasteland. And then there's darkness over all the water. So think of the whole earth as this desert place. There's not life in it. It has no meaning and purpose. People can't live and exist in it, and there's just darkness all over the deep. But then the last phrase, the Spirit of God, the breath, the, the wind. That's what I mentioned last week. It's the word ruach. So the Spirit, the breath of God was hovering and 
It's, it's the picture of like an eagle uh, in Deuteronomy, I think it is, but elsewhere in Scripture, this phrase hovering is, is a picture of a bird hovering over its nest. So the Spirit of God is hovering over these deep, dark waters. And then in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And then on and on we get this repetition for these six days of creation. So how do we understand these first few verses in particular? Some people are startled by the fact that verse 2 describes a world that God made as a desolate wasteland. What is that about? But if you take verse 2 and 3 together and see that as God's creating, it starts out as chaos and darkness, but then God speaks and orders light. And as light comes, He separates the light from the darkness, and this is good. No, no more is there just darkness all over the face of the deep. And no more is there just a land that has no form and is just void As we keep reading throughout these verses in chapter 1, we see God fill the land with life and every living thing. So again, lots and lots and lots of questions. Here's here's two things. I think there's a tendency to fall off the rails one way or the other And my encouragement as we read these first six days, and today we're focusing on the first five days of creation, is to realize that as a church, I think we need to make sure these rails are keeping us within biblical orthodoxy, what I mean by that is good sound, good teaching, and not falling off into error and having all kinds of problems with the rest of how we understand God in the Bible. So, one error is to read these words as just completely symbolic. That's falling off and just saying, like, there's no sense of history in this. This is just meaning and symbolism of, like, God takes bad things and makes them good. That's all Genesis 1 is trying to say. There was darkness, and then there was light. And throughout the Bible, you see light as a metaphor, and all of this is true. Light is used as a metaphor for goodness and for the light of God's knowledge, and we should embrace God's light. But to purely read this as symbolic, I think, would be going too far one way. On the other hand, I remember as I've been prepping for these messages, hearing one pastor, a pastor that all of you, most of you, I would imagine, if I shouted his name, you're like, I know who he is. He's a respected pastor. I think he's a good pastor for the most part. But here, I think he's overdoing it on the other hand when he says, this is historical narrative just as it reads. It's just flat-out history. There's no poetry in it. There's no symbolism anywhere. Just read it, and as it is, that's what it is. Friends, I think that's too far this way. I think you're reading it very poorly if you do not see the literary design of Genesis chapter 1. There is a very distinct literary design. The first sentence, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice some of these things. Seven Hebrew words for the first sentence. So if that's the heading, I think that's probably the best way to read it. 
First one is the heading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then the acts of creation that we start seeing begin in verse 2. And then he explains how he brought light into darkness in verse 3. And then there was the first day. So seven words for that first verse. Then you have seven days of creation. You have seven times that it says that it was good. Even though on the second day, it doesn't say that it was good. Did you ever notice that? Read through and you'll notice that it says, On the first day, the Lord saw the light and it was good. But you go to the second day of creation, and on that second day of creation, there's no mention of it being good. Why is that? The best explanation, I think, is because he's literary writing a pattern, and there's these connection with sevens, the number of completion. Seven words for the first sentence, seven days of creation, seven times he says it was good. Furthermore, there's a pattern for how each day is organized. There's a pattern of, and God said, then it was so. It was good, or some affirmation of it for most of the days except day two. Then there's an explanation of the separation. Then there's an explanation of God calling something, one thing and then another thing, and showing his authority over it. And then there was evening and there was morning. And if you follow these patterns out, there's a seven-step pattern for every day. Now, you start mounting these things up. How in the world can you go on this side and say, it's just historical narrative? You see what I'm saying? There is a literary structure to Genesis 1 that is unique from the rest of Genesis. I think once you get into Genesis 2, it becomes more historically narrative than it does in Genesis 1. This is not completely symbolic Hebrew poetry, so let's not go too far that way. But it is not just narrative. There's so much repetition. There's so much structure all over these verses. Let's stay somewhere in the middle here, and if we are somewhere in the middle here, this helps us a lot with the unity and diversity that we need to have within our church. Because we acknowledge that there's some semblance of God historically telling us how the world came to be, that he is the creator God. Therefore, all of us need to acknowledge that God is our creator and that he made the material world that we live in. He is our creator. Out of nothing, God made everything. But because we know there's some sort of poetry and artistry to chapter 1, where do we draw the line of symbolism versus just, no, that's exactly how it happened. And that, my friends, is a difficult thing that I don't think I can answer all your questions for. But what I can do is urge us, if we stay within this middle spot, we can do the same thing we do with the end of the Bible. What do we do at the end of the Bible? Well, here at Embassy Church, it is our practice to not have fights and arguments about when Jesus is going to come back, which day it's going to be, is he going to come back, and they're going to be a thousand-year reign, and post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, and some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about, Pastor Phil. There's all these arguments and discussions about how Jesus, the nature of his return is going to be, and this is what we do as a church. At Embassy, we say, friends, there's room, there's, there's rails up, and let's stay in the middle of saying, Jesus is coming back. Hallelujah! How about that? So here's what I'm encouraging all of us as we take Genesis 1. I'm not trying to throw away those discussions. 
I'm saying that there's room within those discussions for us to agree, to disagree with one another. If maybe you lean more this way of like, I think it's seven 24-hour literal days of creation. There is room in this church for you to believe that and us to affirm that that could be exactly what that's saying. There's also room for some of you to say, you know what? If I read that as seven literal days of creation, why in the world does it say in day one there was light, but there was no sun or moon? That doesn't come until day four. And then some of you are struggling with this idea of how can there be morning and evening on day one and day two and day three when the whole idea of morning and evening is about the patterns of the sun and the moon? And so some of you are struggling in this spot of saying, there's got to be some sort of literary structure or symbolism about how these days are ordered. And then furthermore, the word day, yom in the Hebrew, it can mean 24 hours. And so some of you are like, see, it's 24 hours. But it also can mean a period of time. And so that's why some of you are like, oh, no, it's a period of time. Are you seeing the tension here? So if we go too far this way or too far that way, I think we will fall into grave error, and I, I encourage you not to. But as a church, as a church in the same way that we can say, listen, we don't really know how to understand Revelation completely and some of the prophecies of how Jesus will return, but here's what we do know. Jesus is coming back. Our hope is in Jesus coming back. So apply that sort of thinking to this chapter. The end of the Bible and the beginning of the Bible the same way. Now, there's a lot of questions about 24-hour days. There's a lot of questions about how that works and the order of creation. But here's what we know. God is the creator of everything. We have life through him. We find hope because he is the creator who loves and cares for his good creation. He says it's good. So we believe in his creation as being a good material world. We don't throw off material things and have this mindset of, well, spiritual things are more important but your material physical needs don't matter. See, no, no, the material created world is good and God is our creator. We can find a happy home if we stay, I think, within these guardrails. Let me give you one more literary example of how to read Genesis 1, days 1 through 6. Have you ever thought, and this might explain that question of how would there be light in day 1 and there's no sun and moon? Could it be, is what I was alluding to last week, that potentially Genesis is in part not trying to answer your scientific questions as much as it is trying to answer the questions of the Israelites when they got this first. And guess who was worshipped, or what was worshipped, almost more than anything amongst all the different gods and religions? Well, the sun and the moon. So look real quick at the day four of creation in verse 14. Notice what it's, the way the Bible talks about it in chapter one of Genesis. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 16. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
question. Why didn't this account of Genesis just say sun and moon? One good reason why it's not the first explanation of day one, one good reason why it's not called sun and moon is because those things were seen as gods. The stars were gods. The moon was a god. The sun was a god. So by putting it later in these series of days, it might help explain, no, 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 no. Babylonians, Egyptians, the God of the Bible made the moon and the sun. And we're not going to give any credit to your gods by even using its name. We're just going to say the greater light that rules the day and the greater light that rules the night. If you get in their world for a minute, you might understand a little bit more about how to read Genesis and see that they have a battle of gods and everybody's worshiping the sun god, which is why they call today Sunday, because people have been worshiping the sun for centuries. There's a reason why there's Monday, because it's moon day. Saturday, Saturn day. Even our own days of the week come from the worship of gods in the heavens. Little g gods. Genesis 1 is saying, no, in the beginning, God created everything. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. He owns it all. He names it all. He orders it all. He brought out of darkness and chaos order and beauty and goodness. That's the God of the Bible. And I hope, my hope is that we as church members can all at least agree, even if there's things we can't agree on, on the particulars, we can at least agree Genesis 1 is talking about the creator God who made a good creation. There's explanations that we can throw back and forth how these days work together. But he's the one who created it all in the beginning God. It's also interesting to note that day one seems to parallel day four. You ever think about that? Day one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was darkness, and then he said, let there be light. Day four, is the functional explanation of light. Isn't it interesting that day two actually parallels with day five? God separates the expanse, which is talking about the waters of the skies, so rain comes from the sky. Now, again, don't think about this scientifically. Think about this if you're 3,000 years ago and all you know is the observable world you see. So there's water in the clouds and in the skies, and then there's water on the ground. And it says in day two, he separated those two things. He's using language that they would have known. Okay. So he made the skies, and then he made the water. It's all talking about water. What's day five all about? God filling the water with all kinds of swimming creatures. So days two and days five match up parallel next to each other. And then day three, the creation of land and animals, or not animals, but the creation of plants and food and the world that we walk on, and then what's day six? Animals and humans. In other words, you can see parallel days one and days four, days two and days five, and days three and day six. So some people see that there's two triads that if you put next to each other, you understand that this literary structure is trying to do two things. One, highlight day six, and two, highlight day seven, which is why we're going to spend two whole weeks on those two days. 
The culmination of all this organizing and ordering and creation is to get to day six and then ultimately to day seven. And there's this pattern even in the literary structure of saying, look how these parallel next to each other. So all of that would be good food for thought for you all as you consider these questions about God and science and can I trust the Bible and does these matters contradict one another. Let me give you one final word from an Old Testament scholar who says, the Bible versus science debate has most regrettably sidetracked readers from the point of Genesis 1. Instead of reading the chapter as this triumphant affirmation of God's power and his wisdom and the wonder of his creation, we have been too often bogged down in attempting to squeeze Scripture into the mold of the latest science hypothesis. When allowed for the Bible to speak for itself, Genesis 1 looks beyond such minutiae. It proclaims the God of grace, the God of power, the one who upholds the world and gives it purpose and justifies all scientific approaches to nature, which what he's saying by that is all science came from an ordered universe to begin with. If there is no God who orders the universe, there is no science. One quick question you could ask a friend who's skeptical of the science Christian discussions. How in the world do you even have science without a Christian worldview that the world is ordered and not random? Genesis 1 is showing the order of the universe from chaos to order. I think we should take on these words to finally close. We behold the God who is, the God who is in the beginning. We behold the God who created with order all of his creation. Lastly, let's behold the wisdom of God's creation. I just want to briefly close with this short meditation. When you look at Genesis 1, I want you to look at it differently from here on out. Not about science, not about days and creation. I want you to think about Jesus. I want you to think about what Ephesians 5 does for us for the sake of reading Jesus into these days of creation. In Ephesians chapter 5, God tells us that marriage was not given to us as an afterthought of, well, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain how Jesus saves the world. Oh, let's use marriage. No, but from the beginning, marriage was given to us to point to a greater marriage, that God loves his people, and that marriage is a little foretaste of the great banquet marriage day when God comes and returns and we have a feast. Ephesians 5 lays down for that. And other passages like it that compare created things. Marriage is a gift from Genesis chapter 2. So think about this. Why did God create sheep on day 6? Because one day he would need to use sheep, use lambs as a sacrifice for his people to teach them about the blood sacrifice that atones sin. And one day, that sheep image would culminate in the person of Jesus. And John the Baptist would say, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Next time you look at sheep, next time you look at day six, think about Jesus, the great lamb of God. Why did God create time Morning and evening, call the one day and the other night. Why does time exist? Because Galatians says in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ would come. He would enter into time, and at just the right time, 
he would die for sins and bring the world back to its original design as he redeems and restores. Why did God create trees in day three? Because one day, Jesus Christ would be hung on a tree. He would have thorns in his back, in his head, splinters in his back. And the God who created trees created them knowing, knowing well in advance, the God outside of time, knowing that in advance he would send his son to hang on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. Consider, my friends, the wisdom of God's creation every step of the way, every time you look out the window, every time you drive down the street, when you drink water, ask yourself, why did God create water? Because one day Jesus would sit in front of a woman, drawing water out of a well, and he'd want to tell her, you're searching for water in all the wrong places. There's living water where when you drink of me, you will thirst no more. He wanted a picture from the beginning when he created water to explain to people that he is the God who when you drink of him, you will be satisfied and you will thirst no more. Why did God create grain and bread? Because he would take bread on the night that he was betrayed. He would break bread and he would say, this is my body which has been given for you. Why did he create grapes and let them get fermented. Because <laughs> he would have wine as a symbol of the cup of God's wrath as he drinks that cup. He would say, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Why did God create rocks? Because Christ is our chief cornerstone and the whole church is built on Christ. You can keep going, right? Next time you read Genesis... Spend some time meditating on all the particulars of creation and consider how Jesus fulfills, becomes all of it. The creator God doesn't just sit back. He becomes a part of creation. He interacts with it. He says it's good in Genesis, and then when it's ruined in Genesis 3, he redeems it through his death on a cross. Friends, that's our hope this morning. Our hope is not in our intellect to answer all of our questions. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in, in the beginning, God. Let's pray.